This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 5th, 2018. Happy belated Independence Day to everyone. Hope you guys all enjoyed the holiday, fireworks, all that fun stuff. I'm your host, Patrick Moran. Coming up on today's show, I have a man who was one of the best defensive ends in the NFL over the past 20 years. He played in the league for 14 seasons, won a Super Bowl, made Pro Bowls, had more than 100 career sacks. I am talking about Kevin Carter. I'm telling you now, I've done some pretty cool interviews on this podcast, and this may be my favorite one yet. Kevin is an intelligent, honest, insightful guy, just a great person to have a conversation with. We went for more than an hour on a wide variety of things, and I'm telling you, seriously, I could have easily went on another hour more just listening to some of the things he had to say. So insightful. Really was. Wow. We go all the way back to the beginning and talk about him growing up in the state of Florida, playing for Steve Spurrier and the Gators, being the first defensive player taken in the 1995 NFL Draft. He went six overall and was the first defensive player taken in the draft, a class that included future Hall of Famers like Warren Sapp and Derrick Brooks. We talk about him going to the St. Louis Rams, a franchise and organization that frankly really sucked when he got there. I mean, they were really, really terrible. We talk about how his fortunes and the team fortunes really started to change when Dick Vermeil got there. And before you know it, he'd go on to win a Super Bowl and be part of a team that was forever known as the greatest show on turf. From there, we talk about his time playing with the Tennessee Titans under coach Jeff Fisher and playing alongside Steve McNair. He's got some great Steve McNair stories. We talk about him playing for both Nick Saban and John Gruden as his career was winding down. We just cover his entire career, and Kevin's got a ton of great stories, honest stories along the way that I think you're really going to appreciate. If you weren't a Kevin Carter fan or if you're a younger person who hadn't heard of Kevin Carter, give this interview a listen. I got a strong, strong feeling when this is over, you'll be a Kevin Carter fan. Trust me on that. Real quick note, too, before that interview. And this is for Buffalo sports fans. On next Monday's show, I'll be joined by John Vogel from The Athletic. And we're going to talk about many things. But yes, 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 yes. First and foremost, we will discuss 
in his own words, why he left the Buffalo News, what led him to going to the Athletic, and again, in his own words, his feelings on what's shaping up to be a huge rivalry between the Buffalo News and the Athletic, something I'm sure he's taken very personal, so I can't wait to have that interview and bring it to you on next Monday's show. But that's next week. Right now, let's get down to it. This was fun and I loved it. And I learned some things that I did not know before today. Here's my interview with former NFL great Kevin Carter. My guest today was a first-round pick in the 1995 NFL Draft out of the University of Florida and went on to play in the NFL for 14 seasons. During that time, he won a Super Bowl, was a two-time Pro Bowler, and that's back in a time and an era where making the Pro Bowl actually meant something. He led the NFL in sacks in 1999. He's a member of the 100 Sack Club and is currently 27th all-time in sacks despite retiring a decade ago now. I'm talking about Kevin Carter. Thanks for joining the pod today, Kevin. Pumped to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm a big follower. Love listening to your podcast. Love the introspective, weighty, meaty questions you ask your guests. So looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Pleasure's definitely all mine. Well, let's start here, okay? So you're born in Miami. You play high school football in Tallahassee. I've lived almost my entire life in Buffalo, New York. Before moving to Florida two years ago, And a big reason why we moved is that my son is in the Florida high school football system. And man, I'm finding out that Florida football is just a completely different animal. What is it about Florida youth and high school football that just makes it stand out so much more than almost anywhere else? You know, it's just a concentration of great athletes. And I don't know how that came to be other than the fact that it's always hot. It's, you know, the sun's always shining and, you know, you've got to deal with the elements. And when I was a kid, you know, if, if you want to go outside and have fun, or if you want to play, you've got to deal with the elements and just, you know, one of the things about, you know, I had a teammate of mine, DeMarco Farr asked me, you know, when I was playing for the Rams, you know, why are all you guys so fast, (laughs) you know? And I, and I, and I said, and I said, I told him, I said, I never really thought about being fast or not being fast. I was just trying to keep up. I mean, you know, everyone down here is outside running and playing. We don't have the disadvantage of not being able to play football, you know, or go outside at inopportune times because of weather or whatnot. We're, we're always in the sun. And, you know, that, that, that high heat index down here just makes us tough and kind of desensitizes us to the elements. And um, there's a lot of great athletes down here. So, you know, for me, I had an older brother, which helped out a lot as well because I was always you know, two years younger, trying to keep up with the bigger kids. And, um, you know, it paid off for me. Who were a couple of your favorite football players growing up as a kid? I was a big Herschel Walker fan. Um, At the time, you know, I loved that he wasn't necessarily a weight room guy. I liked the fact that he was, you know, he had some issues. And, you know, he wasn't perfect. He was a flawed human being, but he was a tremendous football player. Um, you know, he had an outlet, he had a vehicle, he had, he had something that he could do that no one else could do. And, you know, he used that to overcome so much in his life, you know, his upbringing, um, you know, socioeconomic challenges, um, the challenges of, 
you know, culturally being behind in a world that, you know, doesn't necessarily cater to you and, you know, isn't designed for you to succeed. You know, this kid came out of nowhere by the railroad tracks in Georgia. And I, and I loved his story. His story spoke to me. I loved his coach. I love Vince Dooley. I love what he stood for. You know, back in those days, the standard of SDC football, you know, was, was set by Bear Bryant and then handed down to people like Vince Dooley. And, you know, I loved that Georgia program. And for, you know, by all accounts, man, when I started getting recruited in high school football, I was going to be a Georgia dog because of Herschel Walker. When did you first start falling in love with playing football? I didn't start playing. I, I didn't start playing football until high school. Um, I was always in love with the game. Um, but in, in my house, you know, my parents had a rule and uh, they wouldn't allow any of us to play tackle football until we were in high school. You know, they felt that it was a violent sport. We could play flag football. We could play soccer. We could play baseball. And um, we could do almost anything, you know, out there that was available, you know, through recreation sports and um, and whatnot. But it just wasn't about football. So I played soccer and I played baseball my entire life up until about my my freshman year in high school. And my freshman year in high school, I, I went out for my JV football and basketball team. Um, but back in those days, you know, I went to a large public high school in Tallahassee, Lincoln, Lincoln High School in Tallahassee, Florida. And we, you know, they had cuts. So I went off my, my JV football and basketball team and didn't make either one of them. Um, actually ended up um, staying in band um, and, and I was in marching band my freshman year. So I got on the football field, but it was in a band uniform carrying a saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Like I said, I'm going to circle back to football in a second. But yeah, I read that in high school, you, you were a saxophone player in, in the school marching band. Where did the where did the love of that come from? That's different. Well, I don't hear a lot of athletes, you know, <laughs> talk about stuff. I find it really interesting. I'd love to know what made you like doing that. You know, m- my parents were 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 great people. You know, there's there's and I know that's oversimplifying, but for for them, they were two kids that were from Madison County, Florida, you know, small town outside of South Georgia. And they got married in 1969 and they didn't have a thing. They had, you know, $300, you know, between them. My dad, um, my dad had just come back from Vietnam, just come back from the army and they wanted a different life. They wanted a different life outside of what they could see in their immediate surroundings. They wanted a more socioeconomic, um, advantageous environment for their children. They wanted their children to speak a different language, play an instrument, um, you know, know how to read a wine list one day, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, uh, be able to be comfortable in their own skin, no matter what, and, and, and no matter whom they're around. And, and so they aspired for that. They got married with $300 in their pocket and back in the, back in the early seventies and they moved to Miami, Florida. And that's where my brother and I were born. And, um, they, they started that trend. So when I was a kid, you know, I played sports, but you know, the biggest thing in our house was grades. If you didn't have grades, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't play an instrument. You couldn't, you couldn't participate. And you know, the, our church choir or anything. I mean, you could, you pretty much had no extracurricular activities if you didn't make the grades. And I was always a good student. And from the time I was small, um, I took an interest and, 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 you know, I, I wanted to play saxophone. I saw it on television. 
Um, I saw someone playing and I saw Grover Washington Jr. playing um, saxophone and, and I knew that's the instrument that I wanted to play. So my parents being the atypical, you know, black parents at the time, you know, they they cut corners and did things and they bent over backwards so that we would have, you know, those little things that would enhance our lives um, culturally that a lot of other kids, you know, that looked like us, you know, didn't have at the time. And, you know, it wasn't their fault. It's just the world we lived in. Right. Now, a lot of listeners here are from, you know, the New York area, not necessarily Florida. Tell mm-hmm. people who aren't from Florida or Texas, because I would put Texas in that same boat too. Friday sure. Night Lights, how big it is down here in Florida. High school football <laughs> on Friday nights. Oh, high school football on Friday nights is, you know, it basically consumes small towns all across Florida. I mean, on Friday night, you know, you can, in any town that you're in, you know, you don't even have to know who's playing and you can go out and watch a game and it's going right. to be a great time. Um, the talent's unbelievable. There's always speed and there's always, you know, you're, you're going to find a freakish athlete somewhere. And, um, you know, that's pretty much the status quo for what you're going to see Friday nights. And, you know, as far as the, the talent level and the competition that exists, I mean, you know, it's, it's almost religion like down here in the South. I mean, it's that way in Texas as well, but you have people that, you know, maybe they didn't play in high school or maybe they didn't get a chance to realize their dreams. I mean, but everyone, everyone is, you know, hell bent on going to play big time college football because that's just what we do here. It is again, I'm, I've been down here for two years and I'm around a high school football program and the dedication and the commitment that these kids have to excelling not just at high school, but getting themselves ready to play college football. Even when they're 15, 16 year old freshmen and sophomores, it just blows my mind. I had never seen something like that before. Now you become an all American football player in high school. You're obviously mm-hmm. recruited. You decide to attend college at the university of Florida. You become a Gator. Why did you go there? And what other schools did you seriously consider? Um, well, Florida for me was mainly because of Steve Spurrier. Um, you know, Florida wasn't necessarily high initially on my list. Um, as far as, you know, who I was being recruited by, I was big on Clemson. I was big on Georgia, obviously, because I was a big Herschel Walker fan. Mm -hmm. Um, I took a visit to Nebraska, um, really liked what Tom Osborne stood for, loved the standard of excellence and just how he developed young men. Um, and of course I also visited Notre Dame because I mean, hell, it was Notre Dame (laughs) back in those days. You know, in the early 90s, you know, either either you were going to go play, you know, at one of the Florida schools because Florida, Florida State and Florida, you know, Florida, Florida State, Miami, rather, were in the top 10. Or you were going to play somewhere like Miami or Nebraska or one of these programs that was just on the cutting edge of being the best in college football. Mm-hmm. And um, and for me, you know, my first time on a plane, my first visit, first time I ever saw snow was when I took my first visit December 17th back in 1990 to Notre Dame. And, um, I I remember it was like, it was yesterday. It was magic. Like, I mean, it was, you know, it was so captivating to be in a room full of other top recruits. And this was their big weekend. I remember. And I was there with the Jameer Millers, the Derek Brooks, the Warren Sapp of the world, you know, all the big names from that, you know, 1991 high school class. Consequently that, you know, we had, and I think I played in the Florida Georgia all-star game that year as well. 
and six people off of our Florida team got drafted in the first round yeah, that's um, crazy. In, the, in, in the 1995 draft. And um, I remember being there at Notre Dame and Lou Holtz, you know, standing in front of us in the auditorium. And he's telling us about, you know, what it means to be, you know, to, to play football in Notre Dame, what it means to be one of the fighting Irish, to wear this golden dome on your head. And he's, you know, giving this motivational speech. And, you know, we're interested at first, but he's walking around. And he's got a newspaper in his hand. And um, he's slowly tearing the newspaper into shreds the entire time he's speaking. Hmm. And after a while, you know, our interest starts to peak up because we're wondering, man, what is this guy doing with his newspaper? And, of course, he's got this big ball of, you know, trash at the end, you know. And, of course, he's looking around at it, he's throwing this little ball in, in, in the air with one hand. And he's saying, you know, at, at Notre Dame, you know, all your dreams are possible. Anything's possible, Notre Dame. He takes the paper and he shakes it and it's all one big newspaper again. And, you know, of course, you know, we're sitting there 17, 18 years old, like, hell no. You know, <laughs> you know, just captivated by this man. And I, I remember those days. I remember standing outside, freezing my butt off, talking to, to Chris Zorge and talking to Michael Stonebreaker. And Michael Stonebreaker's got on a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, you know, and telling me about what it means to play football at Notre Dame. I remember those days like it was yesterday. Um, it was it was a wonderful time in my life. I was blessed and honored to have been recruited at that level, um, especially so quickly. I mean, I like I said, I started playing football the spring of my sophomore year going into my junior year. So I was a rising junior when I first started playing football. And after um, after a good JV season, I moved up to varsity. And that next spring, it was pretty much on as far as, you know, me being a, a recruit and being a viable candidate to go to college and um, just great days, great days in Tallahassee. Well, I mean, selfishly, I'm a Notre Dame fan, so I would have liked to have seen you went there. Obviously, things worked out for you and you made the right decision. You made uh, first team All-SEC twice. You know, you're an All-American as a senior and Florida won the SEC three times. In the end, what was your experience like playing for Florida? I mean, it goes without saying you made the right choice. Yeah, I made the right choice, but I made the right choice for me because of the man that Steve Spurrier was. Um, you know, people don't realize that when you send your child off to go to college, you know, you're really trusting, you know, that university system um, to finish raising your child. And when it when it comes to football, you know, you're, you're really taking on, um, uh, you know, a, a full-time job along with playing that sport. And little did I know that the kind of man that I would want to be um, a follower of and be a part of his program, you know, would mold me into to the kind of man that I am now. You know, my parents were people that were, you know, filled with standards and they were all about integrity and love and discernment and honor and respect and, you know, all the things that, you know, you really want to teach your children in this world. My parents, my parents lived it. My dad was the head deacon in our church. My mom was active, you know, being an usher and singing in the choir. Um, you know, meals on wheels, you know, every holiday, my mom would you know, save up petty cash, you know, all year long. And then we go out to the dollar store and buy all kinds of gifts and wrap them. And we play Santa on That's Christmas, awesome. you know, having those memories with, with my parents, you know, there were such good people um, going on to Florida was a, was a natural segue into the human being that I would become, you know, as a man, I mean, having a platform with which to give back, you know, the charity work I do through, you know, being a national board member for Make-A-Wish and um, having the Kevin Carter Foundation, which has given away close to $3 million over the last 17 years. Wow. You know, those those things would have never been possible had I not attended a school 
and followed a man like Steve Spurrier. I mean, he came into my living room. I admired the way that he lived his life. I liked what he stood for. He treated his family with his wife with respect. He had, you know, one of his sons, two of his sons were on the staff. Um, just a, just a great man. And our standard for excellence, I mean, people talk about Nick Saban's, you know, commitment to win and how he's built that program. Well, people like Steve Spurrier, you know, you know, is, is the reason why, you know, Florida's had, you know, four or five head coaches over the last 20 years. You had three national titles, you know, are under their belt. There's a reason when you set that kind of standard, you know, when you go out and you beat Alabama by 20 points. But, you know, our coach doesn't think that we won convincingly enough. So, therefore, we're out in the stadium running um, running the stadium steps on Monday morning at 530 in the morning because we didn't win convincingly enough. <laughs> you know, right. that was who Steve Spurrier was. His standard, you know, it never rested. We were, we were, we prided ourselves on being better conditioned and just tougher and in and, and a league that was already the toughest physical play in college football. You know, he, he brought it to a whole new level. He brought speed. He brought style. He brought the fun and gun. And yes, we did play defense. Um, you know, we scored a million points a game, but you know, there are people like myself and Ellis Johnson and Mark Campbell and Johnny Church and Johnny Rutledge and Mike Peterson and Javon Curse and, you know, the names of great players of the Alex Browns go on and on and on with the type of defensive talent that Steve Spurrier was able to lure to that program. Um, you know, blessed and honored to have been a part of it. And, and like I said, I mean, for me, I don't think I could have gone wrong by going to Notre Dame because Lou Holtz is one of those kind of men as well. But definitely, I mean, I had great choices um, as far as, you know, what, you know, I could put myself in a position to do in life and it worked out. I got to ask you this. And we're going to talk about the draft in your NFL career in just a moment, but based on what you said, cause God, it's so obvious that you have great insight on this. If you're a high school kid right now, listening to this podcast, and again, selfishly as the father of a high school prospect, what's the best advice you can give a 14, 15, 16 year old kid right now that has dreams of playing major college football someday. What's that path that they need to take? The first thing I would say is, you know, make sure your grades are on point. Um, you know, without your education, you know, it's it's really hard to envision the type of discipline that a college football player would actually need in order to succeed. And it's not about just about whether you're smart or not. It's just about it's about whether or not you're able to prioritize your time and you're able to have the type of personal discipline that it takes for you to achieve great things. Um, you know, someone investing a quarter of a million dollars into you, into your education over four or five years is no, it's no, it's not to be taken lightly. Right. It's a serious thing. And it's something that, you know, it, it is one of those things that, you know, if you're 14, 15 years old and you're trying to do that, you know, you have to have an unbelievable amount of dedication to your craft. You know, the decisions that you make, your social media, I mean, so many things come into play, the recommendations of your teachers, um, you know, and, and depending on where your talent level is also, I mean, you know, people have to be realistic about, you know, what their child's chances are, you know, for going to the next level. But the dedication that it takes, you know, there is no compromise. There is no compromise in the standard of what you need to do. Um, I like specialized training. Um, I really do. I, I think that high school coaches, you know, know a lot, but a few of them have the type of resources from a training standpoint that can really enhance um, individual talent along the way. So I would def definitely say, you know, get them in some type of training program 
give them the chance, you know, to make themselves viable as a prospect. But, um, you know, and also investigate, you know, what they're going to do and how their development is going. Um, you know, a lot of people want their, you know, they know parents will say, I want my kid used this way. I think they should do this or they should be playing this position. You know, the best thing to do if is, is, is to find a quality program and, and to find a quality coach and worry about the development and overall football IQ of your child. I think that's the one thing that a lot of people lack when it comes to, you know, finding and, and discovering their child's talent, you know, because they may not be in the position that they're going to play. But I can tell you that 90% of NFL players aren't playing the position they played or starred in at high school. Um, I was a high school inside linebacker, and um, and that was my position, you know, until I got to college. And I met a man named Charlie Strong who told me that I needed to play, put my hand in the dirt if I wanted to make some money and, and then play this game for a long time. So, you know, those things, you know, it's a lot of times coaches know more um, than, you know, than, than, than parents. And sometimes, you know, having that, you know, good coach or a good person in your life that, you know, allows for the fundamental development and just the basics of your football IQ, you know, to be on point, you know, that's what you need to do. That's, that's the kind of development that kid needs in order to get to the next level. It's great advice. Okay. So now you wrap up your career, you at your pro day, you run a four, six, six, 40, Dude, you're 6'6", 275 at the time. That's ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. 4'6", <laughs> 640 at 275 pounds. Yeah, I was a tester. Um, you know, I, I was one of those people that, you know, yes, I was a good player. Yes, I had all the things I wanted on film. But when it came to the sheer numbers, yeah, I mean, I, I had that too. That was one, one of the things that was sort of a feather you know, in my cap um, kind of going forward was you know the you know not just the the physical development um but my ability to step on a stage and and perform um you know florida prepared me for that it, it prepared me to be to go into you know any type of competitive situation and have confidence i mean we stepped on the field at florida you know knowing that we were going to win the game having no doubt in our mind no matter how bleak that it may look and um and coach spurrier you know his thing was you know, we were all about the finesse, fun and gun. Everyone thought we were we were just high flying beach boys who had a lot of speed and we didn't want to get physical. But you know, that really wasn't wasn't the case at all. Um, our program was built um, on toughness. It was built on conditioning. Uh, we had a man named um, Rich Tootin that Coach Spurrier brought in as our strength and conditioning coach, and this man was straight up sadistic. I mean, he, the first thing he told me, didn't say hello, didn't say, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Heard good things about you. Didn't say anything like that. He asked me, he says, do you want to be a millionaire? And I said, yes, I would like to be a millionaire. That'd be nice. And he says, well, don't ever question anything I tell you to do, hmm. period. And, and and that was the first conversation that, that, that he had with me. And, um, and, you know, from, from there on, he made it his personal mission just to, you know, psychologically torture me, um, through my days in Florida, but, <laughs> you know, but he, but he, he hardened us. I mean, we were in such good shape that when it came to football season, the last thing that we were worried about, the last thing that we were ever concerned about, no matter how hard the game was, was whether or not we'd have the juice to finish. We mm -hmm. never worried about being better conditioned than our opponent because we knew we were. 
we didn't practice very long at Florida. We practiced maybe an hour and 45 minutes. We were, you know, masters at getting on the field and getting it done. Coach Perrier would come out and he would tell us, you know, early on when he started coaching us, he says, look, we can go out here, we can get this done, you know, in less than two hours um, and get off the field and be efficient. But if we're going to drop passes, put the ball on the ground, you know, not do what we're supposed to do, make a bunch of mental errors, then, you know, at the end of two hours, I have a tee time and I'm going to go play golf and you guys will stay here and run. It only took us about three or four practices to see him putting on his spikes in the golf cart and wheeling away, going to the campus golf course and, and us staying there to run with Coach Tootin. We became fast. We became efficient. We became smart. And that's the way we were. And that's how we played. And, you know, having that, that standard of how he prepared us. I mean, you know, I wasn't the only freakish athlete at Florida. I mean, that's just who we were and what we did. I mean, that was, that was status quo, you know, and they said, Oh man, you're all your defensive line. You know, you guys are all big and strong and fast. And it's like, you know, all of us could run, you know, Ellis Johnson could, could move. I mean, we, we prided ourselves on being able to just be, you know, great athletes that were finely tuned and conditioned and we could outlast our opponents. And, um, you know, that showed up on my testing day. It showed up, you know, in every stage of my career. And it was why I played 14 years and never missed a game. That's, that's phenomenal. Okay. So in 95, not only do you go in the first round, but you go six overall and you're the first defensive player taken in the draft. You're selected by the Rams. Firstly, I want to know what your draft day experience was like. Like, where were you for the draft? Who were you with, et cetera? I was with my family. Um, I was with my agent and I was with a couple of family friends and we were in New York um, for the draft. So if you're going to, you know, if you're one of those guys who's going to be going up on stage to shake the commissioner's hand, you know, back in those days, they flew you up as well. And, um, and I was there with, you know, with the Derek Brooks and the Steve McNair's and the, you know, Kijana Carter's and the Tony Baselli's of the world. And, um, and it was a great experience. And I was there in New York. Um, I remember going to Smith and Walensky's and, you know, getting my first really expensive steak and, hmm. you know, having champagne to celebrate. And I remember like it was yesterday. I remember my parents being so proud. I remember being on a ferry, taking a tour through New York. I'd never been to New York. I'd never seen the, I'd never seen the, the, the Empire State Building. I'd never seen the Statue of Liberty. I remember all those things. I remember going on stage to shake Paul Tagliabue's hand. And, and that's how old I am. It was Paul Tagliabue <laughs> and not Roger Goodell. I remember what it was like being backstage and having the phone ring and someone say, Kevin Carter, it's for you. Um, I remember, you know, when the rumors of, you know, the positive marijuana test for Warren Sapp, you know, making him probably not the first defensive player that would have been taken. Mm -hmm. And so it ended up being me. I, I remember being called by the Rams and talking to Miss Georgia Frontieri and John Shaw um, on the phone and how excited I was. Um, I didn't care where I went. I mean, I, I didn't care if the NFL team was in Alaska. You know, I, I, I mean, all I knew was that I was going to be playing in the NFL and I had that shield on my chest and I was going to be part of something, you know, that would make history. I was going to be part of a fraternity of brotherhood that would last me the rest of my life. It was a dream come true for me. It was surreal. It was everything that you can't put into words um, at that time in my life. I was 21 years old. And, you know, it seemed like everything speeded up for me just on a time timeline schedule. It's like when I went to high school, I mean, when I went to college, rather, 
And then, you know, when I, when I got drafted into the NFL, my life went into hyperdrive. Um, I remember going out to LA and doing all the, the press out in, in Los Angeles because the team, the St. Louis Rams had not moved yet. Um, I remember that time, like it was yesterday. Um, it was so magical, such a dream come true, such a culmination of work, but again, still, you know, as far as I'd come, you know, there was so much, um, still in front of me to, you know, that I had a chance to accomplish and, um, just a, just a great time, um, in my life. That was one of the best defensive classes ever. That first round had you, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Ty Law, Hugh Douglas too, had a very nice career. That's a hell of a defensive class for a first round of a draft, man. Wow. We really had a lot of talent. Um, I, I was down in, um, at the, at the hula bowl. And um, I was playing with um, opposite of Hugh Douglas. And I remember that day because we had seven sacks between us when the game was done. And I mean, we slaughtered them. It was, it it was great. And, but yeah, a lot of great talent in that draft. Um, Antonio Freeman was in that draft. Um, Just a, just a lot of great players. I mean, Tony Baselli, Steve McNair, Mm -hmm. John Carter, Michael Westbrook, Kerry Collins. Um, I mean, just, just, the names in that draft alone, um, a lot of great players. So, how big of an adjustment was it for you? You know, going from a team, a powerhouse college team like Florida, to the Rams initially, because back then the Rams stunk. You know what I mean? Guys were yeah, coming yeah, off we were. coming off a four and twelve season, and you yeah. hadn't won more than six <laughs> games in five years. So, how big of an adjustment initially was that for you? Going from a winning locker room to a locker room that you know struggled to win. You know, it became a job. Um, that's the best way to put it. Um, for me, it was my dream come true. And I was as happy as a kid in a candy store every weekend when I went out to play, but it wasn't that way in our locker room. You know, it wasn't, I came from an environment where it was, everyone did everything the right way. Everyone was on time. No one complained. Everyone loved one another. We all trained. We all believed that our contribution, no matter how big or small, was the difference between us winning and losing. You know, we had an environment where we had that juice, we had that 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 togetherness, that camaraderie. But when I got to the Rams, dude, it was like, you know, people are worried about their contracts. They're worried about, you know, getting hurt. They're worried about, you know, um, you know, am I gonna make my numbers? You know, I gotta hit this so I can get my incentive. I mean, it was so selfish. It was you know, such, um, you know, uh, a fragmented environment and it wasn't what I was used to. It was kind of a culture shock as far as, you know, what we were trying to create and it didn't really come to come to fruition and come together the right way until Dick Vermeil got there. Um, in my third year, um, it was really, it was kind of miserable at first. I mean, (laughs) there was a span in our second year where we lost like eight straight games. I mean, it, it was, it was horrible. I mean, I, back in those days, we were getting crushed by the 49ers. You know, Ken Norton was doing his thing on the goalpost. Dana Stubblefield was saying, you know, same old sorry-ass Rams, you know, <laughs> in NFL yeah. films and inside the NFL. I mean, it was bad. And, um, you know, we were horrible. We had a we had a kind of a, um, a carousel of quarterbacks at that time. Um, you know, we, we had just so many different people. We burned through the Mark Rippins and the Chris Chandlers and the – and, you know, the Steve Walsh's of the world at, at that time that were on their last leg, it was just a, just a really harsh, 
adjustment to coming from a winning environment to coming to an environment where, you know, it was just, it was, there was a lot of dismay, but we had great fans in St. Louis. Dick Vermeule came in in year three. He had coaches like Frank Gans and Jim Hannafin, Carl Harrison and John Bunting and um, Peter Junta and um, Nick Aliotti and people like that, you know, world famous coaches that had years of experience and they promised change. You know, Dick Vermeule told us that in three years we'll, we will be world champs, but not everyone in this room will be here to see it. You know, it will be hard. We, we will weed out those who don't want it and we'll lose a lot before we win and it won't be easy. And, you know, he, he promised that. And there were only 12 of us that were left on that team when we held that trophy up from the original group when he walked through our doors. And, you know, that, that culture, that difference, I would tell anybody who's getting ready to go pro, you know, it's not like your college environment, you know, it's probably you're, you're leaving the last semblance of, a pure environment where everyone cares about each other and truly believes that, you know, their, their, their performance is the difference between winning and losing. I mean, you're, you're, you're leaving that behind and you're going to a business, you're going to sports entertainment on a level that is so much bigger than you that, you know, takes so much focus and just drive just to stay a part of it every year. Now for four straight years, your first four years there, you guys, like you mentioned, you continue to lose, but you're growing as a player. By your fourth year, you have 12 sacks and you're named the team MVP that year. And like you mentioned, mm-hmm. everything changes in 1999. It's probably one of the biggest single season turnarounds ever. The Rams, and I'm sure, you know, it wasn't overnight for you because you lived that whole process. But, you know, to the fans watching, you guys go from basically bottom feeders to, uh, you know, the greatest show on turf in literally one year. You go 13-3, and three, you beat Tennessee, you win the Super Bowl. What was it like for you being such a big part of that incredible turnaround? Because you were a huge part of it. And like you said, there were only 12 guys on that roster that were there the day Vermeil walked in that ended up getting to hoist that trophy. It meant everything to, to, to have been there from day one. I was there from, you know, in the days where we were using the Matthews Dickey Boys Club, you know, as a makeshift facility. I was there when, you know, we had our new facility built and, we started to play in the trans world dome. I was there, you know, in the days where, where, where we were quite frankly, we sucked, you know? And yeah. I remember that, that, that third year that Dick Vermeil was there and it was, and it was, it was, it was close to mutiny in the locker room. I mean, because it was so unreasonable. Our practices were harder than anyone else, you know, in the league. We were going out for two days, three hours in pads twice a day. And I mean, it was absolutely miserable. We, we were, we were playing this barbaric style of football. We weren't opening things up. We, we, we were doing things, you know, in such a way that we were doing it the hard way, you know, and nothing was easy. And I remember that off season before that year, you know, we, we built ourselves into a fairly formidable defense. You know, we had myself and DeMarco Farr and, you know, we just drafted Grant Wistrom. Um, we drafted Orlando Pace. Um, you know, we had we had a lot of great players. We had a guy who was our third string quarterback by the name of Kurt Warner mm-hmm. that we'd gotten the year before, and he was you know from the arena leagues. And I remember being in practice and getting pissed off at Todd Light and Keith Lyle in the back end because you know this guy was killing us, and we'd have to repeat plays, and 
And, um, and, you know, they were completing all these passes and he, you know, the guy never missed. And I'm like, dude, what are you guys doing back there? Come on. You know, we got to get off the field. We got to get through this, you know, do our defensive period. And I remember, you know, Todd Light saying, man, look, man, this guy, Kurt, man, he just don't miss. You know, he throws the best deep ball you've ever seen. And it's just, he's always on point. And, um, and that off season, he became our number two, um, because we lost Jamie Martin to Jacksonville um by by trade and so was one of our quarterbacks and and then i remember you know we we bring in trent green and then we we bring in a free agent by the name of marshall falk we drafted we drafted tory holt we picked up ricky prole um a year prior um, in a free agency and you know we had tight ends ernie conwell and um and roland williams so we had two formidable tight ends we had a slew of receivers we had a guy named Marshall Falk that made it all work. We picked up um, Adam Timmerman, you know, from Green Bay. We had, you know, drafted Orlando Pace. You know, we were becoming, on paper, a really good team. Well, that offseason, um, you know, I remember, like it was yesterday, we were in practice and we were going through one of our usual, you know, two-a-day sessions with three hours in pads and about, about midway through the second practice. You know, we were, it was just another dog day of grueling, you know, contact and everything else. And Coach Vermeil calls us up and he calls everyone up, just stops practice. And he says, and he starts to cry. And he says, you know, you guys are finally ready. We're finally ready to take the next step. You know, we're going to change practice. You guys have showed unbelievable resolve and we're going to change the way we do things. And, you know, hopefully you guys will respond and you know we are are this team will be the championship team and the guy was in tears we were all you know just wondering what was going on he had bought a bunch of pizza and had beer all set up at this place for us and we we all went to a place called the purple pride there on western illinois campus um there and um upper western illinois university and and literally that night we all drank beer and ate pizza and hung out together. And the next day we came out, our practice was shortened. It was like an hour and 45 minutes. We were on and off the field. We were fresh. We were excited. And, you know, we, we, we've been given this gift and we forged something and no one was going to let it go. And even when, you know, Trent Green goes down, you know, at the, on the, at the last preseason game, Rodney Harrison, you know, dirty, dirty pool, you know, goes into Trent Green's knee, <laughs> takes him out. And, um, you know, my dad is almost in tears because he's thinking that, you know, finally we're going to have this great season. My dad's like a super fan and he's like, a lot you know, of people thought that. Yeah. Yeah. What's going to happen. And I'm like, dad, I'm like, I'm telling you, this guy, Kurt's pretty good, man. We've got a good team. Our defense is ready. You know, we're ready to support this team and we got Marshall Falk. I'm telling you, we're going to be okay. And we start playing that season and the rest is history. You know, we had something that if you could put it in a bottle and sell it, you'd be a rich man. If you you know, bottle that feeling, that feeling of love and confidence in our locker room. It was, it was unmatched. Um, even when we lost to the Tennessee Titans, you know, they went up 21, nothing in the first quarter. They ended up winning 24 to 21 on a 50 yard field goal by Al Del Greco. You know, I walked off that field, you know, pointing at them saying, you better hope we don't play you guys again. You better hope we don't see you again, because if we do, you, you're not going to win and you know it. And, you know, we had something that year that was that was special. It was unlike anything that I've ever, I've ever been a part of. You know, 
the rest of my life. I went on to play nine more years after, you know, that season and none of them had the kind of camaraderie that we had in that locker room, the greatest show on turf. Nothing. And, and you mentioned a lot of players and a lot of people have a lot of contributions to that team. But you know what? Let me throw some props your way too, because that year you led the entire NFL in sacks with 17 and you make the Pro Bowl. That's the first time in your career where your individual accomplishments and the accomplishments of the team match up for one. So I can only imagine how special 1999 must have been for you. And as for that team, man, as a football fan, I put it right up there with like maybe the 85 Bears. It's just two of the most entertaining football seasons I've ever seen from a team. It was just so much fun to watch. Even if you weren't a Rams fan, you're like, God damn, <laughs> this is fun to watch. That's how I felt. I'm a Buffalo guy. You know, I'm born and raised in Buffalo and, you know, the Bills were, well, I didn't know it at the time, but they were headed towards 17 years of no playoffs. But even as a Bills fan, how could you not watch you guys and be like, holy crap, man, this is a lot of fun to watch. You guys really were must-see TV at that time. You know, I felt justified um, at that time because, you know, I was there and could really appreciate it from the days when we sucked. I, sure. I was there and then the times where, you know, we were four and twelve. We were three and thirteen. We lost eight games in a row. I was there for for all of the bad times. But you know, we played good football then, still. And you know, we found a way to you know, and guys like myself and Demarco and Keith Lyle and Todd Light, Toby Wright, Roman Pfeiffer, you know, London Fletcher. We found a way to play our best football, even though we were getting killed every weekend. And we're like, you know, our attitude was like, look, you know, they. We may lose a game, but they're not going to beat our defense. And, you know, we started off by just having pride. And then we, you know, carried that over. And then when we finally found some 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 chemistry on offense, you know, it all came together. It meant the world to me to be one of the leaders on that team because, you know, having having been unjustified and, and not having felt like you know, my efforts were making a difference and, you know, we were still losing every weekend, even though I was taking individual pride in what I was doing, it still wasn't, it wasn't complete because we weren't winning. Um, so to, to be winning and to have that justification to be part of the original group that forged, you know, what it took for us to win, you know, it meant everything. It meant, it meant that, you know, my talent was justified and meant that my contribution was justified and meant everything. It, 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 it was it was truly indescribable as, as far as being one of the people to come out of darkness and and like I said I mean you know look I had double digit sacks before mm-hmm. I, you know I had twelve sacks and I'm sitting there watching the Pro Bowl as I watch Reggie Wright and you know Robert Porsche and these guys who don't have my numbers go to the Pro Bowl and get these accolades you know we didn't get accolades because we were on a horrible team and you say what you want. If you're not in a good market or if you're not on a team that's winning, then you're not going to get the accolades. You're not going to be recognized, you know? And, um, and so for me that year, when we start, you know, killing everybody and and running up the score and, you know, and we're doing the bob and weave and, you know, in the end zone and we're getting fined every week because we're celebrating as a team and we're blowing people out, you know, we're doing that, man. You know, I was a part of that. Like I was a reason why we were doing that. And, you know, we took pride in it. And, you know, to be all pro, to leave the league in sacks, it was the culmination of so much hard work. It was justification. It was, you know, it was truly redemption. As a, as a player, whether it was just or unjust, did you feel a lot of pressure 
to help be the one, you know, one of the guys who really turns the team around. Because again, you weren't a six round pick in the draft. You were the six overall pick. And it's not just you, you know what I mean? It's a collective defensive unit and offensive unit. But as a player, do you really feel that pressure to be one of the main guys that helps turn things around? Because like in Buffalo, again, I keep using Buffalo for an example because that's where I'm from. I remember Bruce Smith, you know, being the top overall pick in the mid 80s and the Bills stunk at that time. You know what I mean? He was playing well and he kept getting better. Eventually become one, you know, one of the greatest defensive ends ever played a game. But the Bills weren't good for a while. You know what I mean? It took them time to get to that certain level. And I'm sure he felt a lot of pressure, you know, being as high of a pick as he was. Did you feel that pressure too as a high pick? I did. Um, I felt that pressure because, you know, that's why they draft you that high. You know, no one drafts you, you know, with a top 10 pick for you to not be an impact player, you know, three years from when you walk through their door. I mean, you weren't drafted to simply, you know, sign a big contract and play a long time and contribute you were you were you were drafted to be a star right you know from 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 the time you hold that jersey that number one jersey up and you put the hat on on stage from the time you shake the commissioner's hand you know the eye is on you and the clock is ticking you know when are you going to be what everyone thinks that you can be when when are you going to turn that corner and be the leader of an organization and lift that organization to a world championship when are you going to be the person that when it's all said and done when your team is winning you're the most heavily contributing player on that roster. You know, that's what organizations are waiting for. That's their, that's what they envision for all of their top picks, no matter who they are, no matter where they go. Everyone's looking for that player that will change their organization and can say, yes, I was drafted here and I brought a world championship home to our fans. That is, that is the ultimate goal of an organization and a player. I felt that pressure I met that pressure and I realized and made the success real. And, you know, that's why it was so special because, you know, there wasn't anything that in this game that I didn't accomplish that I set out to do. The next year in 2000, you hit double figures and sacks for a third straight year. You guys go 10 and six, but you lose to the New Orleans Saints in the wild card game. Uh, You guys, you know, you guys were getting blown off the field before scoring three touchdowns in the last 10 minutes made a close game. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, before 1999 or maybe let's say 97, you probably would have taken a 8-9-10 win season and been happy with it. But coming off a Super Bowl, how hard is it? You know, you're thinking that this team is built to repeat and to fall short, you know, as a player, how hard is that for you to, to be able to accept? Well, it's hard, especially because there are so many external factors that you really can't control that contribute to whether you win or lose. Right. For us, for us, it was our coach, um, Steve. I mean, um, when 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 we won Super Bowl, you know, Dick Vermeil had brought together just an unbelievable cast of people and coaches and players together and created just a championship environment. We thought that environment would last, but you know, without the person driving the ship that instills that level of togetherness and love and standard for your program, you know, it just doesn't work. When he stepped down as a head coach, and I remember we were all a bunch of us, there were nine of us in the Pro Bowl that year. And we had a conference call from Coach Vermeil while we were there after one of our morning meetings. And he told us, he broke the news to us that he would be stepping down and he'd be retiring. And, you know, we were all, you know, just, of course, confused and hurt. And we didn't want him to step down. We didn't want him to leave. But little did we know, you know, that Mike Martz had 
you know, put pressure on the organization and, you know, for him to become, you know, a head coach elsewhere or either there. So they redid his contract and gave him a bunch of money and said that he would be the head coach whenever Dick Vermeil stepped down. Well, Dick Vermeil said, well, you know, let me make it easy for you. <laughs> so he went ahead and stepped down hmm. being that, you know, he came back after 14 years in the broadcast booth and didn't really have anything else to accomplish. He came back to do what he said he was going to do. He said, we'll be world champs in three years. And we were, um, so it was, a, it was a very opportune time for him to walk away, you know, having fulfilled everything that he thought that he fulfilled, you know, in that Super Bowl greatest show on turf team. But when he stepped down, that's when everything left. I mean, the Rams were back in the Super Bowl two years later. They didn't have me. They didn't have a, a few key people here and there. And they came up short to the Patriots. You know, I really believe that Dick Vermeil had stayed. Um, I know for a fact that I would not have left. Um, I know that, you know, that team would have and could have continued as one of the greatest, you know, cast of characters ever assembled. Um, we could have kept that going. But, you know, it's always playful and happy to, to kind of say what could have been. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that moment in time. Um, I'm thankful to have been a part of something so special. Now, you get traded that offseason to the T- Tennessee Titans, a team you beat in the Super Bowl two years ago before that. First, props to you on fetching a first-rounder after being in the league for six years. You're still commanding a first-round pick back. What was your reaction and feeling at that time? I'm assuming going by what you just said, you know, with a different coach, it kind of didn't feel the same to you as when Dick Vermeil was there, which, by the way, I should have mentioned him stepping down after winning the Super Bowl, so my fault on that. Well, what was your reaction and feelings at the time? You know, personally, I was relieved, um, you know, t- to get out of a bad situation as far as contracts um, go. I mean, you know, Mike Morris and I did not get along. Um, he was mainly an offensive guy and really sought you know, people that were seeking contracts and having squabbles with the organization, he took it personally, like it was a reflection on my loyalty to him, which wasn't the case. I mean, it was just the sheer fact that when you lead the league in sacks, you know, for a couple of years and, you know, in three years from nine, from 98 to 2000, you know, 42 sacks, I had more sacks than anyone in football. Right. But, you know, guys like Michael Strahan and Robert Porsche, you know, these guys are making, you know, six or seven million dollars a season. Um, doing what they do when their numbers don't look like mine. And here I am. I've outplayed my first round contract. Great contract. You get a big deal, you know, but I'm playing for a million and a half, $2 million a year. And I'm making a fraction of what I should be making by the production that I'm putting out there. And, um, and so, you know, there is a problem. You know, we all get to the point, you, know, you hope you get to a point as a player and the organization hopes you get to that point as well. They hope you hope they hope they have a difficult decision to make. They hope that they have, you know, issues with you possibly holding out or maybe wanting to franchise you or something. Like that. They hope they have problems like that because that means that you're doing what they brought you in to do. And that's outperform, you know, the contract that you sign. And for me, you know, it was all gravy and it was all good, but it was difficult getting out of there. And, you know, the, the Titans stepped up. Jeff Fisher was a guy that, you know, he was a fan of mine and, kind of took a liking to me when I first came out, you know, didn't take me initially. They took Steve McNeil, which worked out to be a great pick for them as well. But, um, but, you know, having the opportunity to, to make me a part of the organization, you know, was really a big fan of mine and took the opportunity to do that. And I was honored um, to, to get the kind of contract that I deserved at the time. 
and you know it reflected um you know what my worth was and but also on a different note from an organizational standpoint the titans were a great organization Mm -hmm. um they've been in the super bowl a couple of years prior and they had some semblance close to what we had and that greatest show on turf locker room as well um they had the kind of camaraderie and togetherness where they had you know the indomitable spirit and they had number nine i mean number nine was a special special man god rest his soul he was one of the most fierce competitors that i ever played against steve um you know steve mcnair eddie george frank wycheck bruce matthews benji olsen um you know that whole crew you know, and the guys that they had on defense, I mean, you know, the Eddie Robinsons, the Javon Curses, the Joe Salaveas, the Henry Fords, the John Thorntons, the Blaine Bishops of the world. I mean, they had such a talented roster up and, up and down just with men who, you know, had a certain standard of, of playing. And they were tough. They had, they had a, dare I say, an era of, of, of toughness, you know, even more so than, than we had. They were physical. And, um, and when I went there, you know, being that I was going to join that locker room, I, you know, I thought to myself, man, I got to up my game. You know, I've got to make sure that I'm, you know, my toughness and consistency is on point with who these people are. And it was a joy to be in the locker room. It, it was, it was, it was an honor to join people that I had so fiercely battled um, in the past and to be a part of that. And, you know, I had to earn my keep. I had to make myself, you know, viable and endear myself to them and prove that I could do it, you know, in another setting. And the success we had there, you know, playing for Jeff Fisher was, was also great. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't bring it home. We lost in the AFC championship game um, to the Raiders um, in 2000, 2002, 2003. Um, but, you know, it was also a special group. So, I, you know, had a great time playing in Tennessee. Some of the most richest, you know, years of my life, great money, um, great time in my family's life. Um, and great memories and started my foundation and, you know, still, still run charity events that, that bear my foundation's name to this day. I'm proud to say that in my charity events that I started there in, in Nashville, have uh, they, they've outlived my playing career. You know, my event waiting for wishes um, there in Nashville that I do with JD Marcus from make a wish of metal Tennessee has been going on for 18 years now. And that's wow. longer than I played in the NFL. So a lot of great memories, a lot of great moments, and was honored to be a part of that organization as well. But to me, going there at that time was was sheer relief. I was heartbroken that I couldn't be a part of the greatest show on turf, and it was, you know, knowing that in my mind, I think I could have made a difference on that last drive, you know, <laughs> when when Benetieri kicks the field goal. But um, it was hard. It was hard not being with them. But you know, there is a business side to football, and you can leave this game after 14, 15 years. And, and be a good guy and, and and not make the kind of money that you can make and walk away with a bunch of bumps and bruises that will plague you for your lifetime surely by, by what we do to ourselves physically um, in the sport. Or you can walk away knowing that not only did you play great football, but you also maximize the window of earning power. So in 2005, you signed with Miami, which effectively makes me stop being a Kevin Carter fan. Because I, I hate, I'm a Bills guy and I hate the Dolphins. Right. <laughs> Seriously, though, jokes aside, Nick Saban was your coach in Miami for two years when you were there. And the only two years he was there. What was Saban like as an NFL coach to you? Um, you know, I really didn't have a problem with Saban um, just on a day-to-day basis. I didn't have a problem with how he dealt 
with me personally. Um, I actually liked him a lot um, as a person. He was well-read, uh, treated his family with respect, um, you know, had great taste in wines. Um, you know, just a, just a, just a good person, a, a cultured person. But um, the thing I liked about him is his standard, his standard for operating and, and doing things. I was at a point in my career, man, where I'd, I, I'd played for Dick Vermeil. I played for Jeff Fisher. I knew what it was like to be a part of a great organization. I knew what it was like to, to be part of a standard that was uncompromising. So for, for, for him to take this militaristic, all controlling, you know, um, you know, job there in Miami and try to control every aspect of what they were doing wasn't really a culture shock to me. Um, but I think it was, um, for the, just, just the players in Miami and just the environment that it was in, um, you know, Miami is unlike, um, a lot of other places. It's a large market with a lot of distractions and, um, and I think, you know, for Nick Saban, you know, you can't necessarily treat everyone the same. I think the mark of a true head, good head coach is being a manager of personalities and finding that semblance of, you know, where you just, you know, reach, reach a space where everyone believes that their contribution is the difference between winning and losing. You know, that unselfish, not worried about my contract type attitude, you know, that's that's what you're trying to achieve. And for him, he ran like a college team. I mean, he treated, you know, players differently. He treated coaching staff differently. He, you know, did things and treated the players like they were on scholarship. And I think, you know, when you're dealing with grown men, some of which you make more money than you do, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you really have to trust whom whom you don't want to trust. You know, your, your, your star player may be a guy who, comes up with a posse that's got three phantoms on game day and he's wearing a chinchilla mink and a bowler, you know, that may be your, your quarterback. That may be your star player. And you know what? You may have to trust this person, even though you don't like them. You may know this person is out with hookers and smoking weed and drinking all night before the game, but they may be your best player on Sunday and you've got to trust that person. And, and I think, you know, the different personalities in the NFL and the, just the, just the sheer monetary implications were were difficult for him um, just to manage um, from from a from a head coach organizational standpoint. And I also think that you know he wasn't able to get the quarterback that that he wanted. You know, and um, and I remember being in his being, being in his office with Jason Taylor and Zach Thomas and Bonnie Holiday and Keith Trailer and Wes Welker and you know a group of guys that were older and had their stripes, so to speak, that he called his peer group that he would kind of share things, you know, you know, special information or, you know, what they were trying to do as far as trades and kind of get their opinions on just the, just the general state of the team. And I remember, you know, him asking us whether we wanted Drew Brees or whether we wanted Dante Culpepper, both of which were coming off of, you know, major season ending injuries and rehabbing. And we were like, do we want Drew Brees? Drew's a natural leader. You know, um, one of the things about, Dante Culpepper is a great player, you know, one of the best, highest completion percentages in the game, in the history of the game. But that was mainly because of his mobility. Mm-hmm. Take away his mobility, he's got to be a quarterback. I'm trusting Drew Brees to be more of a student in the process. He's had to compensate for his lack of size with, you know, that type of vision anyway and a high football IQ. So get Drew Brees, you know. Um, the organization wants Dante Culpepper. He gets vetoed, doesn't like it. 
And that's when I guess, you know, he pretty, pretty much made his mind up to get out of there. <laughs> so, wow, you know, and, uh, and that was one of those things that just, you know, it was unfortunate and it was bad timing, but you know, the rest is history. He goes back to, he goes back to college football, goes to Alabama. And, you know, now he has one of the best programs in college football history. So, you know, it, it was a good experience to play for him, um, made a lot of money in a couple of years, but it was hard. It was a really hard environment because it was hot um, and there were a lot of distractions and there, there was a lot to try and overcome from a team standpoint of getting everyone on the same page and and not not having guys talk about what they did at the Clevelander the night before and on South Beach and getting them concentrated on football and, and building a championship team. You signed with Tampa, where you would go on to spend the last two years of your career. That was also John Gruden's last two years in Tampa. I'm going to ask you the same thing that I asked about Saban. What was it like playing for John Gruden? It was great. Um, I was at a point in my career where John Gruden didn't want me to be a star. He wanted me to be a role player. He wanted me to be a highly skilled mercenary type role player guy that could come in, you know, have a consistent level of play, but also teach, um, young guys, what it was like to be a pro, um, you know, and he really, one of his things, I guess one of the biggest knocks on John Gruden is developing young talent. And, um, and, and he didn't really, he didn't like young guys, you know, that's why he always, you know, had a bunch of veterans around that he could trust and didn't have to babysit. You know, the question he asked me when I, when I came here um, on a visit, you know, he was, he was dead set. He was like, you know, he says to me, I got Rondé Barber in my defensive backs room. I got Derek Brooks in my linebacker room. I need Kevin Carter in my D line room. Can you round out my defense? Do you love football that much? Can you help my guys become pros? And I remember sitting there talking to him as, you know, in his office. And, um, and it was just, it, it was truly a joy to play for him because he was a person that, did the little things from an organizational standpoint um, that made your experience as a player and enhance your family life and allowed you to be the best pro you could be. Even at that point in my career, I mean, I'm 35 years old and, you know, I don't have 70 plays, you know, a game in me anymore, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted me to, to, to be a good mentor and to help, you know, this team, you know, achieve its potential. We won the division, you know, went on to the playoffs. We ended up losing to the eventual Super Bowl champion, um, New York Giants. Um, we had that two great years. My my son was six or seven at the time. And, you know, on Saturdays, he loved for the kids to be in the facility. So everyone had their kids in the facility on Saturdays for our walkthroughs. Um, you know, we we found a great neighborhood. We had a we had a great family life and our kid had friends. I mean, it was a great time in our life personally. And, um, and John Gruden really helped to make that experience. Um, you know, it was, it was a wonderful way to end my career, put it that way. Man, you got some really good stories. This has been a lot of fun. Just like with every guest, I like to end each interview with a little mini lightning round. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions, not a lot of deep thought required and whatever comes to your mind, just spit it out. Is that cool? Cool. All right. Toughest football player you've ever played against. Steve McNair, Steve McNair, um, the two times that I played against him when I played for the Rams, um, he was the most fiercest competitor. He was the strongest quarterback I think I'd ever experienced been around. Um, 
He had a stiff arm that could separate your shoulder. I know so because he did that um, in the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> um, the guy will make you lose skin on different parts of your body, depending on the surface you're playing on. Um, but he, he was, he was someone that just had an unbelievable will. And I think from a quarterback standpoint, I never played anybody who was tougher as a quarterback. As far as an offensive lineman, there was a guy named Willie Anderson that played for the Cincinnati Bengals. He was a right tackle I out of Auburn, Auburn that I played against. And, you know, if you ask, you know, defensive ends during that time, you know, whether it's Robert Porsche or, you know, or, um, Michael Strahan or any of the great ones at that time, you ask them one of the toughest offensive tackles, I guarantee you Willie Anderson's name will be called and will be mentioned in that group of guys. He was just a guy that, for whatever reason, he had my number. I mean, I could figure most people out, and there was something that most tackles would succumb to, but nothing worked on him. Not hands, not speed, not power, not counters. Um you just had to weather the storm with him. You had to keep rushing and keep rushing and keep rushing. And he might make a mistake at some point and you might get lucky. And that's the only way you're going to beat him. Um, strong against the run, strong against the pass. He's just unrelenting because he was just so big and just so strong and just had great mobility, um, had uncanny mobility and movement um, for, for that of a right tackle. Most right tackles in those days were bruisers and, and he was he, he he was everything. He had the best of both worlds. A player that you wish you had a chance to play alongside with, but never got that opportunity. I wish I had a chance to play opposite of Michael Strahan. Um, I think we would have set records, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> Probably, as far yeah. as getting to the quarterback. Um, the way that he rushed the passer was very um, unrelenting and contained. He wasn't wild. In his approach to the quarterback, and I think I attribute that to being a left end. Left ends most most quarterbacks are right-handed, and you know you're 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 rushing on the side to his throwing hand, and he's going to see you most of the time, which means that your rush can't be one that's just wild and you know placed as blindside. It's one that has to be contained and keeps the quarterback in, so, so that you help the rest of your defensive line. Um, you. I think I created more sacks for other people than I got um, during my time playing. And that's truly the, the, the job of a, of a great, you know, left end. Um, I would have played, a, would have liked to have played right end opposite of Michael Strahan, a guy like myself that was good at that as well. So I could have maybe uh, capitalized and got some of those sacks. <laughs> Favorite non-sports related activity to do. I like fishing. Um, I live on a lake here in Florida and you know, there's not two days that goes by during the summer or mainly year round because it rarely gets cold here that I'm not out on the dock or out on my boat throwing a line in the water. Um, I was out there spraying weeds earlier um, out by the dock because the cattails are starting to get out of control. So I was spraying this kills all high yield herbicide on these things and then I <laughs> put the sprayer down and I dropped a line in the water. So pulled out a nice little two pound bass um just just a minute ago as a matter of fact so nice. that's that's my thing I, I like to fish it clears my head and it's nice to be out in nature and just and just enjoy being on a lake what area of florida are you living in now by the way oh, this is all i live topic. in tampa i live in tampa oh, florida okay. so after after 14 years and four different teams my wife said we weren't moving anymore so <laughs> 
Tampa is home. What's your favorite city to visit? My favorite city to visit is um, these days is Nashville. Um, I spend a lot of time there. I'm, I'm there every every other month. I'm there for about a week, um, just maintaining relationships with my sponsors and discovering new ways to enhance um, a community that I built a, a relatively large charity platform in. And Nash, Nashville is, has kind of become one of those cosmopolitan places. They call it Nash Vegas now because so many people are starting to move there, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, um, it's one of those places that's really exciting. It's a big place for, you know, um, all types of conventions and everything else. And, um, and I, I really enjoy going to Nashville every couple of months. If mom and dad would have never changed their mind and not allowed you to play football at all, even in high school, and you didn't get these opportunities to play football in any capacity for a living, what do you think you may have wanted to end up doing with your life when you got older? Well, I majored in zoology um, at Florida because I wanted um, originally when I got to Florida, I enrolled in what's called a a five-year farm D program. It's a five-year program for pharmacy where you get your doctorate in pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was going to do that, but I didn't register. So I needed a four-year degree and a way to get a, um, a degree that I could go on to grad school, possibly medical school or pharmacy school after that. So I majored in zoology and biological science. And um, I was really at home in a lab. Um, I'm really at home, you know, measuring and doing tedious, boring lab work and measuring out compounds and mixing and experimenting and doing research and m- making slides and and stuff like that. Um, I really enjoyed a piece of um, my independent research my senior year at Florida. I did it for a doctor named Dr. Lewis Gillette there at Florida, and I did a study on alligator thyroid tissue. Um, being that I was trying wow. to compare that of that of a healthy environment to um, a polluted lake in um, in Central Florida there near Gainesville, and I made slides, did a complete presentation, my findings, and everything else. So I would venture to say that if I had never played football, I would probably be somewhere working for some pharmaceutical corporation, maybe like Dupont or or I don't know, um, you know Pfizer or something like that. Um, you know, doing doing experimental drug research and discovering new ways to cure people. That's a pleasantly unexpected answer, man. Wow. (laughs) Last two questions here. Second last question. I almost feel dumb asking you this now. If if Twitter were to send you a note and say, hey, Kevin, we have a new policy. You're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only. Who would it be? You know, these days I would have to say it would be Soledad O'Brien. Um, she is, she is a really talented journalist. Um, I think she's a little bit, she's, she's a little liberal and outspoken. Um, but I think it's mostly in response to some of the people that heckle her. Um, I think she's smart. I think she's informed. Um, I think she's beautiful. She's a mother of four and she's just one of those women that's just dynamic and powerful and really attractive and and not, and I don't mean like in a bad way or anything sexual or anything. I just think that she's one of those people that I think has formed this unbelievable platform and, you know, she's a minority and she's strong and powerful. Um, so, and, and I, and I love her posts. Um, I love her response to people who would be, um, obnoxious and mean and say things that are divisive in our society right now. Um, there's a lot of that going on and I think she fights it the way you're supposed to. 
Last question here. I ask everyone the same question. Three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, who you got? Abraham Lincoln is my first one. Um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, he had a vision for our country that did not involve slavery. It, 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 it really it involved true greatness by capitalizing on all the contributing members of our society. And I think I would love to, 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 to sit down and break bread with him. Um, the second person would be Martin Luther King. Um, I think his vision for the world we lived in and how he was able to accomplish all that he did in, in civil rights and the rights of minorities, um, having a vision um, during a very peaceful protest. I mean, you think about all the civil unrest and injustice that was going on, that still goes on in our country. And he, he, here's a man who was all about godliness and about perseverance and about petition and prayer and vision and touching people's hearts and getting those who would be the oppressor um, to see the other side of, of, of the world that they're creating. And, you know, can't really say enough or put into words what, you know, he, he would, what, what he did and who he was to this world. But he's someone obvious, um, obviously that I would want to break bread with as well. Um, the third person, um, I would want to break bread with just, just because I think this person falls in that category of human achievement, um, as, as well and peace and prosperity and vision for our world, but it's a completely different culture. Um, again, nonviolent protest, um, Mahatma Gandhi, you know, mm -hmm. um, my wife has a wonderful saying, you know, is by him and that it's been echoed in so many ways, but, you know, is to be the change that you would like to see in the world. And, um, and, you know, that's who he was. So, um, yeah, Abraham Lincoln, Dr. Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. There you go. <laughs> Man, this was, I'll tell you what, this was a lot of fun. I wish you would have been a Buffalo Bill. Um, <laughs> your career worked out just fine as is, but, you know, selfishly, God, why couldn't you have played for Buffalo? Seriously, though, Kevin Carter, thanks for your time. I'm going to put your Twitter handle and, and your website and all that stuff in, in the show notes. I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Got to know you really well, and you got some awesome stories and some great perspective. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and asking the, the 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 deep, meaty, difficult questions that truly reveal someone's personality. I think a lot of people in this world who have accomplished great things, they've accomplished great things because of what they have inside of them. And I thank you for giving me the platform with which to share that today. All right, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Again, huge thank you to Kevin Carter. Blown away by how insightful and good a storyteller he is. I really enjoyed that. Hopefully you did too. Like I said at the top of the show, coming up on Monday, I'll be joined by John Bogle of the Athletic Buffalo. We'll be talking media, sabers, wrestling, and a whole lot more. If you haven't already, and I can't believe that you wouldn't have already, this is the portion of the pod where I beg you to go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show. Literally, it's like one or two clicks of a button on your mouse or your laptop or your phone, whatever it may be. It's quick, it's easy, and it is free. You subscribe and new episodes get sent right to your phone. Play them and cherish them forever. 
or delete them after and say that I suck. You can also hear this podcast on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, uh, Spotify now, pretty much anywhere excellent podcasts are heard. Bonus points for being cool and following me on Twitter at Pabaran Tweets. Alright, have a good, nice, safe weekend and I'll talk to you guys again on Monday. By the way, I'll be traveling to Buffalo next week. You have no idea how excited that makes me. It's been seven months, which honest to God, feels like seven months too long. Cannot wait to get back to Buffalo next week. I'll bring that up on next Monday's show. Talk to you guys soon. Peace.